Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. Father, we thank you again for, just for your faithfulness in our lives, that you don't leave us or forsake us. You don't uh, leave us alone as orphans, but you give us the Holy Spirit, that you're always with us. You guide us and direct us. Lord, you are emotionally invested in the circumstances around our lives and the things that we face from day to day. And we thank you, God, that you care, that you care for us, that we're your children. And so tonight we come to you with the intentions of hearing from you, Lord. We just want to sit at your feet, want to sit in your lap, Father, and and just hear your wisdom uh, from your word, Lord God. And so may the Holy Spirit be present. May you guide and direct us and be our teacher this evening. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we started the life of Joseph. It's going to be an amazing study. Uh, his character study is just phenomenal. and We're going to go verse by verse through it all. But just as fast as we got into the life of Joseph, we jump out of the life of Joseph. Because Genesis 38 takes a diversion from the Joseph story and looks at, takes a snapshot really of Judah's family. The, it's a, and it's a messed up situation. In fact, We've seen a lot of messy situations in the godly line, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Judah here in this chapter, he takes it to like a whole new level. David Guzik noted in his commentary that this chapter here is evidence of the fact that God's nation was becoming increasingly influenced by the Canaanites around them. And so God formulates a plan to change things, and we know what that plan is. He sends Joseph into Egypt and eventually takes the whole uh, nation Uh, Judah and all of his brothers and that whole nation into the land of Goshen to separate them from the Canaanites. And we're going to see that in this chapter. It's just a mess. Uh, You'll agree that after we read this chapter, something has to change because this godly family, this godly line is struggling to preserve their their own godliness. Now, a quick disclaimer before we jump into the text. I've said this before, but the Bible is not G-rated. It's not. This tonight's chapter is definitely not a chapter you would cover in the Sunday school. Okay, And in fact, if children are listening online or on the podcast, maybe you want to turn this off right now, because this is definitely not an appropriate message for kids. Um, if you were making a Bible TV series, this episode alone would, would push your rating to TV mature. Okay, it's, it's a little racy, and it's super scandalous, but guys, this is the Word of God, and we're going to cover it knowing that the Bible is true knowing that the Bible addresses the complexities of life. It really does. And you know what? I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God's not afraid to talk about the nitty-gritty, the messy, the ugly. Like, God is not afraid to address these things. God does not put on a church facade. He, he, he allows the Word of God to really get in and cover the mistakes and the ugliness of life. And He's in the midst of all of it. And I'm thankful for that reminder. So let's jump right in. Verse 1, it says, It happened... At the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Now, we don't get his wife's name. Shua is not Judah's wife. Shua is the the father of this girl. And this might be an indication that we don't get her name. It might be an indication that she probably wasn't the best selection of a wife by God's standards. Um, He took her, though, it says there, and went into her. Verse 3, she conceived and bore a son. 
and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. And Judah was in Shazib when she bore him. So we have Judah here. He strikes out on his own. He gets away from his brothers, presumably to get away from the messy situation with Joseph and Jacob and all that, the, the deception of the brothers, right? Getting away from all of that drama and grief and sets out on his own and he starts to run with this Canaanite guy named Hira, which is probably not a good example. Bad company corrupts good morals. He starts running with this guy Hira who's in the, in the mix with the Canaanite culture, which we'll see in a, bit, in a minute here is not uh, a healthy culture to, to be around if you're trying to honor God. Then he sees this Canaanite woman and he's like, wow, she's a babe. And all of a sudden says he goes into her. So as far as we know, he didn't consult Jacob with regards to this marriage. He didn't consult his brothers. He just kind of did what he wanted. He's acting a lot like Esau. If you guys remember Esau's story. He went out and found him a woman, a Canaanite woman. And that Canaanite woman was a grief to his mother, right? It's just the Canaanite ways were way different than what God's people, how God's people were supposed to act. So, so he's acting in the flesh. He's acting like Esau. And he, he shacks up with this woman that likely God did not intend him to. They might not realize this now, but we know and understand that the Messiah is supposed to come from Judah. That's the prophecy regarding Judah. That through him, the Christ would be born. The seed of the woman would be born through his line. So his family, his selection of a wife is vital to the process of God's salvation. And this might be why God gets so hands-on with this family situation as we're about to see right now. Verse 6. It says, And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Man. So here's Ur. Judah, Judah goes out and finds a wife, and I'd imagine he shopped a little differently for his son's wife than he did for his own wife. He seemed a little bit uh, impulsive when he was looking for his own wife. I'd imagine he was a little more selective with regards to who his son would marry. And he finds this woman, Tamar. We don't know a lot about her, but I think from what we'll see here, she seems to be more of an upstanding woman than, than Shua's daughter. But Ur does something wicked. He has some form of wickedness in his life. And it says God just kills him. God sees this wickedness in Ur's life and God puts him to death. That's a scary verse, is that not? That kind of wakes you up a little bit, right, to, to God and his authority. But you know, I think it's good to have a healthy fear of God as we read this. I think, not that we should live every day in fear that God might strike us dead if we make the wrong move. You know, that's not God. That's not his heart. He's gracious. He's slow to anger, the Bible says, abounding in mercies. But to acknowledge that God has the right to take life as he sees fit, he does. I think it's good to, to, to understand that. And we see this in the scriptures. He does it several places. Uh, Uzzah reaches out to, to stop the ark with David and the Lord strikes him dead. It happened in the New Testament even. Ananias and Sapphira. The Lord strikes them dead for lying. 
It's like God, God reserves the right to take a life whenever he wants. And the reason why this is okay, guys, is because God is the giver of life. There is no life apart from God. All life is God's. Therefore, only God has the right to take life as he, he sees fit. And here's the good news. God is perfectly just and righteous. He always does the right thing. So God is also the most qualified to decide who dies when. But this is a reminder that there, there are circumstances where people will cross a line and God says, that's it, that's, I'm done with this. And he takes your life. He takes your life. Now, critics of the Bible often speak out of both sides of their mouth. They look at a text like this and they'll say like, you know, God is so evil. He just, he flies off the handle and he kills somebody. See, God is wicked. God is evil. But then on the, uh, the other side of their mouth, they'll say, God is evil because he allows wickedness on earth. He allows evil on earth. And it's like, well, what do you, God judges a man for wickedness. And you say that was wrong. Then God doesn't judge someone for wickedness, and you say that was wrong. It's like, you can't win, right? These critics uh, contradict themselves, but this verse to us is a reminder that, that God, though He does allow evil to take place, and He works His purposes out, there is a line that people can cross where God does not allow evil. And I want to tell you guys, we see a lot of tragedies happen. and that, We see the bad. The evil that God allows, we are aware of. But we are not aware of all the evil God prevents. So keep that in mind. This chapter shows us that there is a lot of wickedness that God does actively get involved with and draw a hard line and prevent. And I think that's good to know. We should respect God and His authority as the judge. So because of some extreme wickedness in Ur's life, God takes him out of the picture. And again, it could be because he's being hands-on with the lineage of Messiah here. Verse 8, Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother. So this duty that Judah's referring to, it's called the leveret marriage. And it's basically when a woman loses her husband, that widow then is joined to her brother-in-law just for the purpose of, of creating an heir for the deceased brother. And it, it provided several, it was for several reasons that this, was, this took place. And it eventually became a law in Deuteronomy uh, 25. But primarily it served two purposes. One purpose was that it would give the widow a place in the family. It would give her security. And it would, it would assure her that she could still have a family even though her husband that she had slept with is now dead and she didn't have any kids. That basically would put you off the market in a lot of ways. In fact, a lot of people in that situation would be forced into a destitute lifestyle, a destitute situation. But in this regard, if, if the Leverett uh, marriage was enacted, she would have a place in the family. And then secondly, it also helped continue the family line. It helped, it helped someone who was to inherit this property. It, it helped give them someone to inherit that land so it didn't just go to someone random. If you think about the tribal way of life, the way that they lived, you wanted to perpetuate your tribe. And you wanted to make sure that you had descendants to inherit the land and work the land. Remember, the land was a big part of the covenant of Abraham, that they would dwell in the promised land and that they would be fruitful and multiply. So this leveret marriage thing, it's weird to us. Uh, it would be very strange to have to do this today. But to them, it was actually something very beneficial and very, very uh, 
honoring to that widow, actually. So it was a big deal. Verse 9, it says, But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so he, whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. I bet you didn't expect to hear that from the pulpit tonight. <laughs> Verse 10, And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Like God is dishing it out in this chapter. So this verse here, it's often used as a proof, a proof text when people want to preach against masturbation. That's another word you probably weren't expecting to hear from the pulpit tonight. And it's probably the only time I'm going to say that word tonight. Um, but I don't believe that's the proper context for this chapter. For, I don't think that's the right conclusion to make with regards to this text. Uh, but I do want to cover it just because this is the, this is the verse people typically cover this subject. Self-pleasure. What, you know, is it right? Is it, is it okay to do? And I'll say that nowhere in the Bible does it directly address this. This, this. this verse alone is where it pops up so people try to make this be the verse that addresses it. But again, this, this verse does not necessarily speak to that. So there's nothing that directly says anything about that particular um, action. But there are various biblical principles, guys, that, that can be applied to the issue. Now, gotquestions.org has a lot of resources on these things, so I actually went to their website, and they have a really good article that I'm just going to pull from, and I'm going to share with you. They gave four, four godly principles out of the New Testament that really speaks to this idea of, of, is this action okay? Number one, they point out, whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Can you do that to the glory of God? It's a good question. Secondly, Everything that is not of faith is sin. Romans 14, right? So if, if it violates your conscience, is it right? If you, can you do it in faith? Is it something you can do in faith? Another good question. Thirdly, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Does it feel like you're honoring the temple of the Holy Spirit? Again, these are questions to ponder, right? Fourthly, the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. Are you exhibiting self-control or aren't you? So I, I like how they wrapped up their, their summary of this article. They said, if done with absolutely no lust, immoral thoughts, or pornography, with full assurance that it is good and right, with thanks given to God for the pleasure it brings... Is it still a sin to masturbate? And the most we can say is maybe not. However, we have serious doubts whether this scenario ever truly exists. <laughs> and I think that's, that's a pretty good summary. I mean, I've had people throughout like pretty extreme circumstances. Like, well, what about this? What if, and it's like, okay, I don't, like they said, maybe not. That's the best you can say. Maybe it's not wrong. Maybe. I don't know. Now, I wouldn't come down hard on anybody for dealing with this, for doing this, but I would coach you as a pastor and say that this is a great area to exercise self-control. This is a great area to exhibit control over your own body. I think the self-control argument is really a good one that, hey, you don't have to do this. And, and, and you ought not to let it control you this desire, this pleasure. 
And I want to tell you that the more you exercise self-control, the stronger it gets. The Bible says resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Resist temptation. You'll get stronger over the temptations in your life. And this is a great area to exercise authority spiritually over the desires of the flesh. So I'll coach you in that and say, hey, I think there's a better, there's a better way. Self-control is the, better, is the better way. But it does seem, regarding our text, more likely that God is judging Onan because he was using Tamar strictly for sex and had no intentions of honoring her. It, it was strictly a selfish act on his part, taking advantage of a situation where he's supposed to honor this woman and he's just using her for, for his own pleasure. He just wanted consequence-free sex with no obligations, no emotional attachment. Unfortunately, that sounds like a lot of men in our society today. Tragically. And, I, and to be honest with you, I think a lot of men in the church think this way. This is one of the two-faced things about Christian men. You can act one way in church, but really that's how you think out there. It's, and it's, it's really a, a decay in our society, this thinking amongst men. Right? That, that this is the goal as a man. That this is what it means. In fact, Onan, he's an example of counterfeit masculinity. And what I mean by that is counterfeit masculinity is it's, it's manly to have consequence-free sex. It's manly to try to hook up with girls, right? If you're a player and, and you can really play the game and play the field, like that's what it means to be a real man. No, that's counterfeit. In fact, I'm going to straight up tell you, Onan is a coward. And men like that are cowards. They're selfish cowards. They're little boys who all they know how to do is eat their candy. They don't know how to do the right thing. Onan was a coward because he couldn't step up to the responsibilities God put on his plate. He was just a selfish little kid getting what he wanted and hurting people in the process. That is not what it means to be a man. Having sex is not the mark of being a man. Okay, We need to realize that. Honoring women in your life Protecting women. That's what it looks like to be a man. It, it actually takes integrity and it actually takes work. It actually takes thoughtfulness. Something that little boys struggle to do, but men do. You honor the women and you step up to the responsibilities that God has put on your plate, especially the hard ones and the uncomfortable ones. That's what it looks like to be a man. And Onan did neither of these. And so God judged him for it. God judged him for it. Perhaps God was saying, this is not what my, my lineage is going to look like. Though we know God wasn't very selective as far as there's a lot of you know, immorality in the, in the lineage of Christ. But there was something here that God says, no, this is not happening. He is not going to be a part of this picture here. Verse 11, Then Judas said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Judah here, he's, he's concerned at this point. He's like, what is up with this lady? Is, this her, is it her cooking? Like, what is the deal here? Um, maybe she's cursed. But in Judah's eyes, Tamar is the problem. And he's like, I'm not giving her my third son. Hey, hey, Tamar, yeah. Uh, why don't you go to your father's house? Because, you know, Shayla, he's, how old are you? You're 14. He's actually like 10 years old, and, um, and it's going to take a few years for him to be old enough to actually be given to you. You know what she does? She goes to her father's house and waits. 
in celibacy, she honors Judah. She honors the Lord in this. And Judah's like, I, it was, this is basically his way of saying, hey, hey, thanks for your application. Um, don't call us. We'll call you. Right? That was, that was what Judah was saying here to Tamar. And, and so she goes to the father's house. She honors the covenant. Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adolamite. So now he's a bachelor again, running with Hira and getting into who knows what kind of trouble. Sheep shearing was kind of like this party festival thing. And Timnah was perhaps where, um, near where Tamar was living in her, at her father's house. So she hears about this. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So pr- probably years had passed at this point. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. So it becomes evident to, to Tamar that Judah isn't going to do the right thing. Um, so she comes up with this plan to trick Judah into sleeping with her. Now, this is definitely scandalous. Like, she's, she's pretending to be a prostitute. Very scandalous. But remember, she's doing all this so she can honor the covenant. Very twisted, I know. But she's doing this so that she can fulfill her role in Judah's family and bring forth children. And Judah has cast her aside. So again, from Judah's perspective, he's fine. He hasn't done anything wrong. His boys were fine. Tamar's the problem. But from God's perspective, Tamar's the only upright one among them. Tamar's the only one like honoring God and doing the right thing in this situation, even though she's pretending to be a prostitute right now, which is, again, it's all very, very interesting. Um, so she sit, what she does is she sits by the road, she covers her face, and this was the common practice among Canaanite prostitutes. And so I want to explain to you the nature of the Canaanite culture. Okay? They worshipped gods, the god of pleasure, whom they sacrificed their children to. They found Canaanite structures, houses with kids' bones in the walls. They would put their children in the walls as sacrifices so that the god of pleasure would bless their home. They would burn children alive to Molech, the god of pleasure, right? They worshipped the god of fertility. And the way they worshipped the god of fertility was through cultural active prostitution. Prostitution was just like a normal thing. So normal that the women of the culture would spend at some point in their life time in prostitution. So like Mormons send their their young adults away on mission for two years. It's It's what you do. If you live in Israel, you serve in the military for two years. If you grew up as a Canaanite woman, you served in prostitution for a couple years maybe, perhaps. Who knows? Think about, think about this. So every woman in their culture, you're raising a little girl with the intentions of making her a prostitute one day. Your wife was an active prostitute at one time or is still a prostitute. Can you see the, the, the debauchery how, like, 
immoral this would be, how sexually immoral, and the diseases that would spread through a culture like this. I mean, this, this was how bad they were. Though we don't know if Tamar ever served as a prostitute before marrying Judah's son, we do know that she remained celibate in her father's house. We do know that, that she saw Judah's way of doing marriage in their family, and she honored that, and she wanted that. And so reading between the lines, we can see perhaps Tamar was a woman of faith, and God was honoring her, right? So this is a huge testimony of her character. And so sadly, she has to pretend to be a prostitute to get Judah to do the right thing. Hey everyone, Pastor Sean here. You've been listening to a teaching from Ignition Tucson, the Young Adults Ministry of Calvary Tucson. Our hope is that through this ministry, your heart would be ignited to live boldly for Christ. If you live in the greater Tucson area and you're between the ages of 18 and 28, we want to invite you out to join us in person. We meet every Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Tucson's East Campus on Speedway and Camino Seco. We hope to see you there. God bless. Down away.